Join me in 1 Peter as we press on in our study of what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ, even in the face of hostility. God's grace is sufficient. Around our house, I often say, be nice. And it's usually to the dog, all right? You know what it's like. You hold out a treat to your dog, and this once domesticated beast like reverts to instinct as if they need to eat as much as they can today because there might not be tomorrow. And they lunge at the treat. And I'll, and I'll just say, be nice. Like, relax. Stop that. Or when she barks at the blind and deaf dog next door, I tell her, just be nice. The poor dog literally walks into the trees and the fence in the backyard not knowing where it is. Doesn't even get out much anymore. Be nice. Many Christians need to learn to be nice. But really, what does nice mean? On one hand, be nice sounds like it could be a vague sermon title and some liberal denomination that doesn't even open the Bible. We're just going to talk about being nice to people. On the other hand, we actually all have a pretty good sense of who nice people are. Sometimes even strangers you meet, you can immediately get a sense of, well, that's kind of a nice person. So nice, with all of its vagueness, actually has kind of a place in our understanding. We know what we're talking about when we say, you know, dinner was really nice. You might not have started with, it was awesome, as if this was some glamorous, fancy place, but by saying it was nice, it actually has like a warm kind of place in our minds, as do nice people. I want you to listen to our text and consider how much of the exhortation in this paragraph would fall under the umbrella of just being nice. I don't want to leave it there in some vague generality of application, but I think the text will help us understand what it means to be nice. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, reading through verse 12. This will be some of Peter's instruction by inspiration, and then it will be Peter citing Psalm 34, which was read for us early. Uh, that, of two, that, of course, too comes to us by inspiration. So beginning in verse 8, Peter writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For, and he quotes the psalm, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil." As a follower of Jesus Christ, you must be a nice person. Just kind of makes me smile just thinking of talking about nice. It's not even like a common word in English translation. We'll lean hard on gentle or kind. Um, but we don't say those words probably as much as we use nice. So let's hear the big idea as pilgrims, as followers of Jesus Christ, in our being different, that difference should include being nice when we know plenty of other people who aren't. Now, I know we can't please everyone. It's not like we're trying to be nice to like, prove Christianity to them because some people, even though they would say you're very nice, might condemn you for being too nice. So this isn't about being consumed with what people think of us. It's really about being consumed with what God commands of us in this one simple paragraph with all of these imperatives telling us what our lives should look like. 
in this paragraph, we see it's addressed to all believers. He says, finally, and then you see finally, but you turn a couple of pages and you think, is this like characteristic of preachers who say finally and they've got a good 15 minutes to go? What does he mean by finally? Well, he's kind of wrapping up this section that is telling us how we should live our lives, especially in response to those who may not be treating us well. And with an emphasis on those who are under authority in some way. So he's talked about being subject to every human institution back in chapter 2 and verse 13. He's talked to servants being in submission to masters, even if they're not good and gentle. He has given us the example of Christ who suffered unjustly at the hands of authority. He has spoken to wives to be subject to their husbands, even those who aren't believers. And now he says, finally, in in this relation to others, All of you, it's not just wives, it's not just citizens, it's not just servants, but all of you now hear this kind of summary admonition about how you can look different because you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's changed your life and the difference is evident in the way you live. All believers must hear these commands that are summarized simply as be nice. And because nice is vague, we need to ask and answer two questions. One, what does it mean biblically from this text to be nice? And then number two, how does this text give us reasons for being nice? Why? Why do I have to be a nice person? Let's begin with our first question. What does it mean to be a nice person as the Bible defines it. And I think in our text here, we're going to see five ways. It's going to include Peter's couple of verses of teaching, and we're also going to explore Psalm 34 as it's quoted here. What does it mean to be a nice person? Number one, I want to suggest that the scriptures are telling us we should offer to others some refuge. To be a nice person means there is something about the way that you act toward others that that communicates an open door to a place of refuge. Since Peter is quoting Psalm 34, it is fitting that we use the language of that psalm to describe our obedience in this paragraph of being a nice person. And since that psalm closes with Christ being our place of refuge, if we have tasted that the Lord is good, Psalm 34, and he's this refuge, if we know something of that taste, you taste different things when you eat. Some of you are good at tasting that. Some of you can tell exactly what kind of coffee is in a cup. You could tell me if that's Quick Trip or Starbucks or Keurig coffee. You could tell it because you, you have a pretty good taster there. Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And it begins telling us what he's done for us as his people. And the last taste is the taste of refuge. Well, if we have tasted that the Lord is our refuge, then being nice, being a pilgrim who looks different than a lot of the meanness in the world means we should be a place of refuge to others. Look at the words in verse 8 that describe how we can be a refuge to others. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. It's one word in the Greek, to be like-minded. Kind of a hyphenated word. Your thinking is similar to someone else's. Well, this isn't telling us that we have to have all the same convictions in our families. We all have to make every application of Scripture the same. It's not thinking exactly the same thing. It's, It's having the same source. So our thinking is all anchored in the word, or we could say in the person of Jesus Christ, as Paul writes to the church at Philippi. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So if all of us are trying to think like Christ, and in that context, that servant-minded, self-sacrificing love, if we're all trying to think like that, 
then it should be pretty safe for us to be able to, to do life together and trip and fall once in a while and know that my brothers and sisters who are trying to think in the servant mind of Christ, who recognized his disciples are sinners and need salvation, so he's obedient to death, even the death of the cross. If that's the way I'm thinking when I see my brother fall and stumble into sin, I do what Christ would do and I restore him. It's a refuge found in like-mindedness, especially the servant-minded Christ. Unity of mind. He goes on to mention sympathy. The word means to suffer with. With pathos. Suffering. Do you love people enough to be affected by their joys and sorrows? Do you love people enough to want to offer them refuge? That can be very inconvenient when they, with all of their heartaches and mess, come into your castle of refuge and camp out in your life for a little while. But that's what the text is saying, to be a place of refuge. I, I communicate to others what I've experienced in Christ, and I bring all of my mess to Christ, and, and I let him fix and deal with it. And he doesn't cast me out saying, yeah, that's too much time and trouble. So will we be a place of refuge with true sympathy? Not a glance that recognizes that's a mess, that's bad, mm, yeah, feel for you. But in such a way that we will love to the point of being affected. Some of their mess will, will become ours. Sympathy. Brotherly love. We need to be like-minded. We need to be sympathetic. We need to be loving. And this brotherly love just reminds us that this is the, the stuff that family is made of. It's really the only distinction of the word. I know we tend to make great distinction between agape love, the love of God, and brotherly love. But the Bible tells us at times that God loves us with brotherly love. And it tells us to love with agape love. So it, rather than always pigeonholing all these words, let's just know that there is an emphasis here. Just love them like they're family, which means you're kind of stuck with each other. Happy Valentine's Day. I'm stuck with you, right? It doesn't sound as sweet as we want it to be, but sometimes with your brothers by blood and family and your sisters, you kind of felt stuck with them. But in a moment's time, you could be in it for the long haul with them, your family. And that's, that's the emphasis here. Love people, not because it always feels like so sweet and loving, but because you're all brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not unlike like-mindedness, but now it's instead of thinking like Christ, it's feeling the same love that God has brought us into his family with. We're all family. So stop thinking I'll love that person if they're lovable and lovely and just recognize their family. You have to love them. And hopefully God will work in us some kind of response that looks like instinctive love. Brotherly love, we must be loving. Number four, we must be compassionate. The words in our text are a tender heart, much like Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. And the word there isn't heart in the Greek. It's, it's like stomach or intestines, the guts. Because in the, in the Greek understanding of like compassion and like the other words, sympathy, they felt like it all originated down in the guts there. So like when you, you hear of somebody's terrible injury or something, and, and I, I did this when the prayer requests went out for little Myra, it was, I felt like my stomach like almost knots up. I'm like, I don't even want to think about this. That's where the Greeks got that. It was that sense of somehow that must be where those kind of emotions come from, those feelings. So in the Greek language, in our Bible, it's a tender heart, and we, we understand that, but just know it's kind of a little bit more of a biological kind of picture there. Are you a compassionate person? The idea is you're not callous to things. 
but rather you're very much engaged in them. So it's the idea of being a warm kind of person as opposed to cold. Um, Growing up on the East Coast, that area is kind of known for being kind of cold or short maybe with people. They're not mean, but it's just, they don't gush like happy thoughts all the time or something. In the Midwest and the South, you know, everyone's family and, you know, let's just take it easy and wave at people as they drive by. Don't wave to people back East. Why would you do that? You don't know those people. So that's, that's kind of the idea here. A compassionate person is just warm. It, it's like inviting. It's, it's yellow light as opposed to like bright white, kind of blue light, you know, and all the lights you can buy now. They call it warm for a reason. That's what this word is about. You're not calloused and cold, but you're, you're warm and you're engaged. And the picture here is the Good Samaritan. So the priest and the other guy, they walk by on the other side and they're not engaged. They're calloused toward the need. Not that they don't know about it, but they're not going to be touched by it. The Good Samaritan, as the story goes, being a compassionate person, bleeds warmth and engages in situations. In a sense, he makes himself a neighbor. He saw the one in need and and decided, I'm going to make myself his neighbor. And the warmth and engagement is what this word compassion is about. I feel it deep within and I'm going to serve. I'm going to make myself a neighbor. So if you're going to be a compassionate person this week, you have to impose your neighborness on someone. They might not think of you as a neighbor, a friend, a caring person. They might not know you at all, but you have the right and and even the responsibility to impose your neighborhood on others. Be compassionate. Have a tender heart. And then the last word is a humble mind. And here, like the first word, it's kind of a hyphenated word. We began with like-minded. Here, the word is low-minded. I remember years ago in high school hearing uh, a guy at a camp describe this this word as being carpet-minded, a low mind. It's like the bottom. So to be carpet-minded is think of this carpet. Uh, Or stick around after church, and we'll look at it together. Uh, And you'll find maybe a coffee stain over here, um, and the carpet can't object to that. It just has to take the coffee when it spills. A few crushed Cheerios here or there. Uh, Plenty of feet walking in from the parking lot, and who knows what you've walked on in the course of the week with your shoes, and the carpet takes it all. And everything in us says, well, I'm not going to let people trample on me. That's just not, well, the carpet doesn't have that kind of objection. So carpet-minded or low-minded is this idea of being humble. I'm not always demanding that I be recognized, that I be treated right. Instead, my biggest concern is, are other people being treated right? And so when Philippians says, let each esteem others as more important than themselves, you come to church with this sense of urgency that says, I wonder if there's anyone I'm going to encounter that needs a place of refuge, that needs somebody to just be nice to them this week. Maybe they work in a workplace where it's constant bombardment of not only evil and morals that are different than theirs as a Christian, but just harsh working conditions. And they just need refuge, a little bit of like-mindedness a little bit of sympathy and understanding and rejoicing with them if they rejoice or weeping with them if they weep. They're just looking for a little bit of brotherly love. They just want to belong. You don't have to have them over and enjoy the rest of Sunday with them, but at least show a little interest in them as a brother or sister. They're looking for some compassion, somebody to notice them, so that they're not alone. They're looking for someone that It's just that humble, willing listener and friend. Just be nice. 
But by being nice, it may be that you are representing the same refuge that Christ has extended to you. Number one, offer some refuge. Number two, well, before number two, I say some refuge. Because I I think it's important for some of you to hear if you are a need meter, if you're someone who loves to help and serve and jump in and fix, remember you can't be all the refuge that anyone will need. Okay, you can only be your little piece. You can only be a suggestion of refuge that points them ultimately to the refuge of Jesus Christ. Someone here might say, well, I haven't experienced the church being a place of refuge. You often will hear that. And I'm sorry that's the case, but what do you do? If, if you can legitimately say, I have not felt the church to be a place of refuge in, in my past or in my present. A couple of thoughts. Number one, remember the previous point. Nobody, no church can be everything that you need. Only Christ can be that. But lest we excuse the church for not being nice, let me say, number two, be sure that you are manifesting these five characteristics of a person who offers refuge to others. It's easy for any of us to say the church isn't doing this, but the church is us. So it's an indictment on us. It's a confession when we say that, not a charge. So are you being that kind of person? Now, number three, any time you feel like the church isn't what it should be, then pray. Pray. Ask God to make you what you should be and make his church what it should be. Because that is praying according to the will of God who has promised that one day he will present us faultless. That, that as his bride, we will be without spot and wrinkle in our white garments of righteousness. That's the work he is doing in his church. So if you see imperfections in the church, even this local church, believe it or not, then pray. Pray with the will of God that he will continue to iron out those wrinkles and cleanse those spots. But maybe he's raising you up to begin demonstrating what the church needs, especially in this niceness of refuge. Now, number two, the second instruction for how to be nice. Respond with grace. Respond with grace. Verse nine, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And reviling is the idea of angry response. Oh yeah? Well, you... It's giving back exactly what you receive. The same anger or insult, you're going to turn around and you can find exactly a matching insult for them. We're not going to do that. Rather, on the contrary, the text says, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So don't repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but instead, bless. So we don't retaliate in anger. Our response to hostility or opposition, fair or unfair criticism, must not be defensive and then attacking. Rather, whatever anger or insult we suffer should be converted to blessing. But let's face it, that word is a little vague too. It's kind of like be nice. What what does it mean to bless someone? Because we certainly wouldn't endorse their behavior or their attack, especially if it's on the Christian faith. We're not blessing them saying, oh yes, God's speed, keep up the good work of opposing the Christian faith, persecuting God's church. So we're not blessing them that way. The word is simply the word that we use, eulogy. It means a good word. So in some sense, instead of giving a bad word of evil, reviling in return, you're going to give something that is a good word. So when it comes across as blessed, it, it, it kind of takes on a vague feeling like, am I supposed to pronounce a blessing on them? Or what does that mean? Well, I think 
were helped by chapter 2 where we saw exactly the example of Christ who didn't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but we could say rather blessed them. He said a good word, and that good word perhaps most clearly was expressed in a prayer to his heavenly Father. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Well, how would God forgive them? It would be by the means of Christ's death. So Christ was pronouncing this blessing, this good word, that yes, indeed, by his sacrifice, which was in that very moment taking place, by his work and his ultimate death, let that be the standing for which sinners could be forgiven. That is a good word in response to what he heard. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, given to us both primarily in Matthew, but also in Luke. Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So instead of revenge or retaliation, we bless. And let me bring this down to a small scale, lest we think, You know, well, if some nation attacks us, what are we supposed to do? Well, let's worry about that another time. Give our thought to that another time. And instead, let's think of the real slight injustice of your spouse doesn't do something just the way you like. And you suddenly feel justified in not extending yourself in the same kind of self-sacrificial love. You might not even do anything evil. Or, or sinful in the sense of an action, but now you will you'll reserve love and service because if they're not going to, why should I? Those are probably more of the battles you're going to face this week than being tempted to, to fly off the handle and rage and all kinds of colored language at somebody who did that to you. Because most of you aren't living in perpetual road rage. I think the greater application is the subtle retaliation, the subtle harboring of offenses where your revenge is never known to anyone but you and God. So just don't think that you're not a person that needs to hear this. We're all going to be tempted to respond with something other than grace. A few years ago, I read a book called Blood Feud the history of the Hatfields of West Virginia, and who? The McCoys crossed the Tug Fork River there of the Sandy River, and they were over in Kentucky for 30 years after the Civil War. The killing went back and forth. we, We hear it usually as the joke, the battle over somebody's pig. It started before that, right after the war. Uh, And there was nothing, you know, minor about it. Uh, They didn't beat people up. They, They were killing back and forth for three decades. In 1908, the New York Times claimed that 60 people had died in the family fighting of the Hatfield and McCoy feud. I wonder if we're not guilty of prolonging feuds at times. We just won't let it go. We think we deserve some kind of justice, and God is saying, I don't need you clamoring for justice. I need you to demonstrate grace. I want you to show people that I didn't do to you what you deserved. I want you to show people that Christ took that for you, and now you are free to give grace in the face of injustice. Social media gives you a ready-made tool for feuding because you don't have to deal with people standing in front of you intimidating you or convicting you. So be careful. It may sound like musing. It may at times feel noble, like you're taking up a cause. But read Blood Feud because that's what they said too. We need to be careful that we're not a feuding people. We're supposed to be those who respond in grace. As pilgrim followers of Jesus, we need less feud and a little more nice. 
The next three descriptions of being kind come from this quotation in Psalm 34. Number three, guard your words. In telling us that we should have this kind of mindset of refuge and we shouldn't respond to people but with grace, he then gives an explanation, and his explanation is the reference to the psalm. For, and he quotes the psalm, whoever desires to love life and see good days... It's a unique expression. Peter seems to be linking that to the idea of our heavenly inheritance. Eventually, we're going to get there and obtain our inheritance. When the psalmist wrote it, it seemed to have more of a present feeling. If you want to experience good now, God's blessing now, then you should live right. So I think there's a little, there's an element of both here. Yes, of course, we may suffer unjustly. We should respond right knowing that in heaven this will all be taken care of. But I think there's also something here that means right now, if you want the good life now, it's only going to be when you obey God's commands and you stop taking up the offenses and fighting the battles, being a feuder. Uh, don't do that. Instead, live life God's way, this different life of the pilgrim, and, and you'll know something in the inner man of what it means to have good days. If you desire that, it says, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Guard your words. Keep your words from evil this week. Cross-reference Ephesians 4, right at the end, right before he says, be nice or be kind, there's a lot of instruction about our words. And one of the clear pictures is don't use them to tear people down. Truth is truth, and if the truth is blowing up their building, great. But don't you go and knock down their building. You don't undermine and cut down with your words. Guard your words from evil and guard them from deceit. And again, because most of us don't think of ourselves as pathological liars, let's ask the Holy Spirit for help in knowing, is there any way in which I'm deceitful in my words? Ask that question and wait for the answer and let God's word bring about change. Number four, choose the right. From verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. That word turn away is strong. It's like fast. It's almost like you dip your finger in the, in the hot sauce and give it a taste to see how bad it is and whoa, you turn for a drink. It's like... It, it's a compelling turn. So Peter's trying to communicate here, you, you need to be decisive about doing right because all of us are going to be tempted. The devil is not going to relinquish his attack. He's not going to figure, oh, his wiles must not be that wily anymore. No, he's going to keep coming after you. Choose the right. The choice is set up there. Let him turn away from evil so that's half the equation, and now do good. Similar to the New Testament teaching of even our conversion, put off the old man and put on the new man. So no to evil, but there's more that has to happen. Yes to the good. Peter loves this doing good stuff. Twelve times in the New Testament, there, this idea for do good is used. Six of them are in Peter's letter. He, he, he finds this like a, a key characteristic of the pilgrim. Yes, they're passing through, but in their passing through, they are doing good. Which takes us back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Do those good works. Let your light shine so that men will see that and glorify your Father in heaven. Choose the right. Are you making good choices? What you read, what you watch, how much you work, how much you play, how much you read God's word. The questions could just keep coming and any one of them might hit any one of us. How was last week when it came to turning away from evil and doing the good? And you know what? There's something here also in how we deal with 
kind of that chronic temptation, the sin that so easily clings to us, Hebrews says. This isn't the only solution, but there's something about turning away from evil and not just like, I got to hold my ground, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, but instead filling that invitation to find some kind of satisfaction to sin, filling that void with the doing of good. Go to John 13 and hear Jesus say, listen, happy are you if you do these things. If you wash feet like I've washed your feet, you're going to find there's joy in serving. So there's something about turning away from evil and doing good that I think is, even offers a remedy, at least in part, to the perpetual temptation. If you're prone to fill in the blank, then find something to actually do. It's not the only solution. The greatest solution is be satisfied in Christ. But as we're looking for what does it look like to, to flee youthful lust? It's not just, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I turned away. It's now do good. Get going. Exercise yourself in godliness. Choose the right. Finally, number five, work at peace. Also, verse 11, quoting the psalm, let him seek peace and pursue it. Whoever desires to love life and see good days let him seek peace and pursue it. Are you a peacemaker? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Peter is saying, seek peace because that's the good life. That's what it will mean to be blessed by God. Do you make peace? Are you a last word kind of person? You got to get in your last word. Last dig, last, last point to be made. The word pursue here is so strong that elsewhere in your Bible it will be translated persecute, as in Paul persecuted the church. The idea is it is the hunting down. It is this intense desire that is going to go after it and go after it and go after it. Paul may have said it a little nicer there in Romans 12 as we said that together. As much as is possible for you, live peaceably with all men. As much as is possible. That's Peter's voice. He says it this way. Hunt for it. Hunt it down. Don't be satisfied with anything less than peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Are you one of them? So we have five descriptions of what it would look like to be nice. Let's close by briefly understanding how does this text tell us reasons for being nice. Why should you be nice? So we're going to look back over the text and see how four reasons unfold. Number one, based on verse eight, I would say you should be a nice person because you have the spirit, the spirit of God. Now this is more implied than stated because in verse eight, you don't see the word spirit. There's the idea of the mind and these virtues but I would say you have the Spirit in you because in Galatians 5, the list of the fruit of the Spirit that is manifest in our lives actually includes some of these very characteristics. So how is it we're going to be nice people this week? We're going to be nice because the Spirit of God in us is working that fruit of meekness and gentleness and peace and kindness in other words, be a nice person because you can be. By the Spirit of God in you, you are able to act in kindness and respond in kindness. So our responses to our parents, children, this week should be nice. By that I mean the Spirit can help you to respond to mom and dad rightly. Your response to your husband, your response to your spouse, to your employer... You can be nice. Why? Because you have God's spirit in you. Which means if you are struggling with nice, you're easily cranky, easily irritable, then consider a study of how you should yield to the spirit. Or elsewhere, how you should be filled with the spirit. Or how you should keep in step with the spirit. 
Because if you were doing those things, you would probably come across as a nice person. You have the spirit, so be nice. Number two, why be a nice person? Because you have been called. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for, here's the reason, to this you were called. Well, I assure you, God didn't call you as a sinner and just announce to you that you need to start blessing people. No. There's the huge happening in the middle between you hating people and loving only yourself and blessing people, even your enemies, in between was you encountered the love of Christ on a cross. God demonstrating his love in that while you were sinners, Christ died for you. You've tasted that goodness of the Lord. You've been called to a life of not repaying evil for evil, but instead to a life that follows the example of Christ. The very word was used in chapter 2. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You have been called to this. Be nice. You have the spirit and you have been called. So instead of retaliating, bless those who mistreat you. Why? Because you've been saved from that kind of response of hate. You've been saved to the resulting life of imitating Christ, who did not curse when he was cursed and did not revile when he was reviled, who did not act inappropriately because somebody didn't treat you just right. Because here's, here's the danger this week. Well, if they would have done, no. There's no condition to the reality that we've been called to a life of suffering the injustice and even blessing those who treat us poorly. Number three, why should you be a nice person? Because you will be blessed. Verse nine is interesting because it tells us what to do and gives us the reason. Don't revile and don't do evil, but instead bless. And then there's your word for, and it gives us a reason for to this you were called. Okay, so there's the reason. This, this is who you are as a Christian, an imitator of Christ. You live this way. And then it adds yet another explanation. For to this you were called so that you may obtain a blessing. So there's this blessing that's hanging out there. And somehow we're trying to figure out how do I get that blessing? How do I find that place of favor and satisfaction? And the answer is, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but rather bless. Because after all, that's what you're called to. And that's the path to being blessed. To having this, this inner peace that even when people are mad at you or don't like you or standing in opposition to you, you don't have to engage in that same kind of battle. There can be a settled peace that I'm doing what God wants me to do. And I think that's true because that's when Peter says, verse 10, for, and he jumps right into the middle of the psalm and says, whoever desires to love life and to see good days. You see, if you're a person who loves this pilgrim life, loves imitating Christ and desires his blessing, then you'll live this way. Even though it seems not only counter-cultural, but counter-self. I don't always feel like living this way. But I'll do it because I want good days. I want that blessing that is there for the peacemaker. I want the blessing that is there for the one who doesn't repay people, who doesn't exact justice on everyone who can cover a multitude of offenses in the abundance of love that comes out of them. 
be a nice person because you will be blessed. Number four, and all the other reasons really funnel into this one. Be a nice person because you have been saved. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, it's a fascinating study, the face of the Lord. Often the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Um, his face can shine upon us. So there's, there's something about his face that communicates something, and the context has to help us know what is being communicated. And what's being communicated here is that look that the parent casts down the aisle when the kid's getting a little out of hand at the end of the sermon, right? And it's that look of that better stop. It's the look of judgment, the look of wrath. And here it is. The contrast is there are the righteous and there are those who do evil. One of them, favor with God, he hears their prayer, and the other, he is against them. Our text is saying that because you have the Spirit of God, because you have been called, because the Christian life is the blessed life, then, then be a nice person because when you look at all this, you realize God was nice to me. You've been saved. You are righteous in Christ. And if God is nice and kind and merciful and a refuge, then why aren't you known for those things? Ephesians 2 Verses 8 and 9 tell us, by grace we are saved through faith, not of works. But then the very next verse says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. These verses, like many others in the Bible, remind us that the evidence of true saving faith is there in the works. Good works don't save us. But good works show that we are saved. It's one of the assurances of our faith in Jesus Christ. We can look at our own lives, and the Spirit can affirm that, and others can look at our lives and say, you know, I think that's the work of God in their life. In our study of kindness, this means that if you aren't a kind person, if you are not a kind person, you might not be a saved person. Because we are not talking personality traits and geographical locations of where you were raised. We're talking about the love of Christ has been shed on us. And if that is true, then the love of God should come out of us. If you're not a nice person, you might not be a Christian, the Bible says. I'm not saying that a single act of unkindness is proof that you're unsaved. We're all going to have our moments of unkindness and we confess, forsake, and find mercy. But I'm saying that a way of life that is characterized by anger, by shortness, by callousness, by meanness, by conflict and tension, that is not a Christian life. That's how the Bible tells us, quite simply, to judge people by their fruits. Now, our judgment may be wrong. We may have caught them in a season of great struggle and it looked like a perpetual life of that kind of carnality. So our judgment may be wrong. But when God, through Christ, tells us how to judge people by their fruits, there's just not a lot of explanation. It's really simple. A good tree has good, tree has good fruit and a bad tree has bad fruit. So if you don't have kindness, I don't know if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord in my little perspective. All that to say, there, there is a great weight on us to take this almost feels like a silly theme. As followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be nice people. And, and to just think, well, I'm, I'm nice. But, but are you really? Are you good Samaritan nice? Going out of your way at great cost to be the nice that we're talking about. 
And then a step further, are we the kind of nice, of Christ-like nice, who for you and for your salvation, the creed says, endured the cross? Are you that kind of nice? Because greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friend. And we can't overlook the slightest little flaw of our spouse or our kids or those other church members. We need, a, we need an awakening of nice. And you might find a stronger Bible word. You might like kind or gentle or meek or merciful or steadfast or something. But just know in our paragraph this morning, addressed to pilgrims who are supposed to look different than so much of the world, part of that difference is people know you to be a nice person. And may your niceness, as defined biblically this morning, bring glory and attention, honor to your Father in heaven. Heavenly Father, we have tasted and seen that you are good, that you are kind, that your refuge is truly nice for us. Would you help us then to be obedient to your word this morning and perhaps even feel the conviction of your Holy Spirit so that we could change and be a greater reflection of all that you are in welcoming us into eternal life. Make us nice people this week on the roads, in the workplace, the marketplace, in our online presence, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. And may that niceness be sweet and welcoming so that we might demonstrate and ultimately share the warmth and the love and the acceptance and the forgiveness and the standing that we have in Jesus Christ. And if there's one here today who has never known that intimacy of forgiveness and love and adoption, would you open their eyes to see that your love was fully displayed on an old rugged cross as Jesus died to offer sinners salvation? May we know your blessing this week because we've obeyed your word and have made every effort to be this kind of nice, the niceness that reflects the love of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.